A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Welcome back to the Women's Podcast. I'm Roisin Ingle. I was just a minute ago talking to a Polish woman and she told me that today is Fat Thursday and it's sort of the Polish equivalent of Pancake Tuesday. It's the day before Ash Wednesday when Polish people stuff their faces with donuts. And I'm not usually a fan of cultural appropriation, but I think today I'm going to make an exception. It's freezing. Warm yourself up with some lovely donuts and embrace Fat Thursday. I think in the last year in some houses it's been Fat Thursday every day of the week. But anyway, I'll leave that with you. Donuts are the answer if you have any questions today. More good news is that we're nearly ready to tell you about season three of The Big Night In, which is coming down the tracks. It's going to be starting in March and continuing every second Saturday night until May. And we have a really great lineup and I'm going to tell you all the details next week. So do keep an ear out for that. Now, we have a great treat for you today. Kerry Nidoherty is a woman from Derry who grew up in the 80s in a mixed religion family, feeling neither here nor there in what she calls that dark city, one that was steeped in the saga of loss where the troubles began. And she experienced, as so many did, the trauma of growing up in a conflict society, being intimidated out of childhood homes, losing friends and experiencing violence and poverty. She has written a really beautiful and powerful book about all of that called Thin Places and in it she explores how nature kept her sane and helped her heal and also about how violence and poverty are never more than a stone's throw away from beauty and hope. It's a nature book and it's very unusual and hard to describe because it is full of nature and I've learned so much about curlews and moths and all sorts of things reading it. But it's also a Troubles memoir. Um, It's really gorgeous the way she weaves both those things in together. But also it's really a universal story of how we can try to run from our past, but how it will always catch up with us until we confront the trauma that we've buried, which is something that Kerry has had to do in her life. I really enjoyed talking to her and I hope you enjoy listening. I started by asking Kerry Nidoherty to tell me about those thin places in the title of the book. Yeah, it's an interesting title. Um, The book didn't start out called Thin Places when I began um, writing it. It was initially called, well, for a while it was a children's story called Four North. Um, And then it kind of shape-shifted. It became a series of political essays, um, which were then called Mudlarking, um, which is then a chapter in the book. But then, I don't know, I um, I wrote this essay for Little Toller. Um, which was kind of the beginning of the book. And I sort of realised that the book was then called Thin Places. I realised that um, that was my spring off point. Thin Places, um, it's a very old Celtic concept. Um, So just the idea that there are places that in Ireland and Cornwall, Scotland, Wales, some in England as well, where the the veil between the worlds is, is very thin, it's gossamer thin. Um, so you can sort of feel like you're not really there or that you're really very there or that you're in the liminal space kind of in between and I was really drawn I've always been drawn to 
liminal spaces. Um, and yeah, my granddad used to talk to me about the phrase and I don't think I fully realised how much it had affected me until he passed away and, and I began writing this um, this book. <laughs> For anybody who's um, struggling with the sort of liminal concept and the, the veil between worlds, can you be a bit more specific and maybe even tell us about some of those thin places that people might recognise? Because it is quite a spiritual, uh, esoteric thing that you're talking about. It is, which is really interesting because my granddad was a very like rock solid person and like not airy fairy at all. But um, I think... I think the idea, um, it is a very Celtic one. And for a lot of people, it is embedded in a spiritual level. So a lot of kind of stone circles or churches um, or kind of places where people would have gathered um, for sacred occasions, you know, to build fire or just for a variety of different reasons would be called thin places. But then equally so in the book, I talk about how that, there are some places that there are no markers that show that they are these really special places, but that you can, the marker is in you almost like you are the marker when you're in the landscape, you become the thing that tells you that this is a really special place. So for example, you know, if you think about places like um, in Cornwall, any of the sort of stone circles in Cornwall or, you know, Newgrange or anywhere where you've stood and you, you, you know it. I can't describe it, but you know, you get the tingles or you think you've been there before or you, you can sense something left over. It doesn't have to be anywhere special. Like in the book, I talk about the field that was at the very, very top um, of the second council estate I lived in as a child. And I think it still is like I've been to, I've been to Cornwall and Iceland and all around the Hebrides and the islands, but it still feels like the thinnest place I've ever been. Yeah, I mean, you, you, you. As I said, you reference the thin places, and they you weave it beautifully through the book, um, and it pops up in different unexpected places. And at one point, you say thin places are safe spaces where we're given the chance to be alone, to pause, a gift we find ourselves being given less and less. There is room, more room than we might normally have to wonder, room to ponder what lies beyond the life we're used to leading, the everyday pumping of blood through veins, places to wonder what it means to be made up of blood and sinew and what, aside from carved, delicate white bone, might be left of us after we're gone, if anything. I've been reading out little bits to myself of your book and it really is so beautifully done that it's that kind of um, gorgeous writing that you can pick up at any place and just read beautiful lines. So, Congratulations on that, as well as the beauty, which is the nature writing, I think that you are so good at. And, um, you know, I learned a lot about white moths and curlews and lots of things I didn't know about. But it's also a very intense and dark book. And, you know, you talk about um, Derry, where you grew up as this dark city and a place. I think the expression you say is a, a place steeped in, well, it's steeped in loss, the saga of loss. And for you, particularly as a child, um, beginning at 11, age 11, you know, you had a lot of, as many people in Derry growing up did and in the North generally, um, a lot of um, very traumatic experiences. Um, there's a lot of them and it's, it's a lot to go into, but perhaps you might just start with that at 11, where you were at, your family circumstances yeah. and, and what happened to you. Yeah. So for people who don't have any sort of grasp of Derry, Derry is kind of the place where the troubles began. 
Um, it's been viewed as being a very divided city for a very long time. And the loss that's, that I, I view as sort of living in Derry started probably long before the troubles began. And um, probably as far back, I look in the book at intergenerational trauma at stages. So I think it probably began with the famine, really. Um, just that constant sense of there not being enough and people being almost against each other just in order to survive, which is still there, sadly, because there just isn't enough, you know, for people. Not enough jobs, there's not enough support, there's not enough help. And people have struggled for a long time. And so when I was a child, my parents from a mixed religious background and sort of like I always feel a bit funny when I say that because it's from almost like a no religious background. You know, my dad um, would have had kind of religion and his like his parents were quite religious. But and he you know, he is now. But when we were growing up, it wasn't really an issue. So until my parents broke up. So when my dad left, um, we were then living in a a predominantly Protestant um, housing estate. I think it was completely Protestant, really. And we were no longer kind of able to fit in that box. And at that particular time, things had been becoming sort of a you know, good bit past the middle of the troubles, um, the 80s. But it was still lingering in mostly in impoverished areas, areas where there was struggle, which you'll find anywhere, like, of course, but we, um, yeah, we were petrol bombed out when my dad left. Um, and then I think that just kind of, it always starts somewhere, doesn't it? And then you're sort of running from one place to the next, trying to trying to fit in. What sort of happens in areas if you're kind of intimidated out of one area, you'll be put into the same type of area, but in the opposite way, um, which just obviously if if you, sort of identify as neither um you're not ever really gonna gonna fit could you tell us about the feral cat that kind of I suppose in some ways saved there's a couple of moments in the book where you're very lucky like lucky's the only word I can use serendipitous things happen that uh, you know mean that a bad situation wasn't worse than it is so you were you were woken at that time when a petrol bomb was thrown through the window in the house yeah. of my bedroom my bedroom was at the back of the house um and out the back of the house would have been like a sort of a con- concrete tarmac area for cars and for kids to play football and stuff. Um, and obviously the petrol bomb came in through, they'd come in through the back garden or whatever. So it was my bedroom. Um, and I, it's quite, it's a very interesting thing when you recollect something, um, you know, so you're looking at sort of two and a half decades ago. Um, but it was a very terrifying experience. But this cat, this it was a kitten, had shown up sort of a couple of weeks before, just when my dad left, actually. We had this really interesting situation where, I don't know if it was my brother, but basically a lot of creatures came to us. Like you'll find in the book, there's this cat and then, and then there's a fox as well, like just when my dad left as well. Um, and a rat, a rat came home with my brother. Um, a rat came into a flat I lived in. So it's kind of... Yeah, the series of really interesting wildlife experiences after my dad left. But this cat turned up and my mum was heavily asthmatic and didn't really, uh, interestingly, didn't flinch, like let us keep the cat, Um, which is always, when I look back on that, a really good, lucky thing. But 
part of the story, you know. So this cat just clawed and clawed at me till I woke up. At your face? Yeah, on my face and on my neck. And um, yeah, and uh, and then really intriguingly, the cat didn't really stick around for that long, I think, after. We did get a different cat and then a different dog, but that cat, Mitzi, didn't really stay for that long. But I have this sort of overriding memory, you know, and when I describe, I was really careful with describing the petrol bomb um, for a number of reasons, I suppose, for my own, um, like, not catharsis, I hate that word, but for my own dealing with the situation, I knew that by writing it down, I held some kind of power over it and rather than it holding a power over me. But I think the cat... um, yeah, became a really important element of that story. Um, and I'm, yeah, really grateful, obviously. And we all got out um, unscathed, I suppose, in a in any way that was sort of visual or physical. But obviously we all kind of carried that around with us. Definitely. And that's very much a thread in the book too. The things that we bury in the past the way the past catches up with us and we can never really escape and we have to confront things and and that's all beautifully done too and we will talk about that later so you, you know like you say you were that happened and then it was a, a series of this kind of having to be intimidated out of places um a, a cycle in your childhood at one point you say and i think it's very um important to talk about because of the nature aspect of the book the the way you as I said earlier you talk about the natural world and how much of a solace that was while these terrible things were happening to you as a child but you say if anyone's ever got a child going through something really big like that to get them a microscope or a magnifying glass because that was an important gift that you got I think when you were eight and you mentioned that Beatrix Potter also got a microscope when she was eight which is a nice little thing yeah I I really do think that there's something healing and like deeply nourishing in minutia in just like really, really small details of things. And, you know, I remember when I became a teacher, then they told us if a child ever becomes really anxious or really stressed or worried that there's this thing um, called um, level one sorting so it's if a child ever becomes like that you you get them to do something very very small and very repetitious because it actually helps them to come back into themselves and to forget about the worries around them so I think my my microscope um, definitely was that it was a way of kind of really honing in um, on the known whenever the unknown was kind of just totally out of my control and I think it's interesting because I think what we're seeing in the last year is I mean it might not necessarily be microscopes for everybody but it might be sowing seeds or um, observing the changes on the laneway that you live on and you're two kilometers or five kilometers or um, we're all honing in on the really small details because we're in the midst of something that we can't control we haven't lived through and those things are helping us Mm. so I feel like lots of people are experiencing that um just kind of trying to anchor themselves in this really difficult storm by by paying it paying attention is a revolutionary act it's a healing act but it also changes things drastically we can't um 
we can't make things like if you think about a relationship most relationships break down because of the tiniest things that you don't notice happening along the way so in paying attention to anything we when we pay attention we respect something and we give it its place and we give it its worth and it's that's a really gorgeous thing yeah um talk to me then about the childhood when you remember it I mean it's it's I was thinking about reading your book about dairy girls and obviously uh, it brings so much joy to people and yet there's a darkness always in the undertone as well there um but when you think back to your childhood and all the the stuff that went on uh just day to day and I mean it's very hard when you're a child it's your normality you're not looking around and thinking oh is this is this weird and this is a strange thing I mean what's your what's your when you look back at it um and I know you had a loss of a friend when you were 16 to a young boy who sounds like a beautiful person um who was murdered then just gone in an instant like that so that's another uh very traumatic event that happened do you remember looking around at any point and thinking, what the hell is this? This is not, you know. I don't remember that, which is really unsettling, um, but really common for people, children who grow up with any form of continued trauma. I don't remember ever thinking this is really not normal. Or um, Robert McFarlane writes about childhood as being this place, a separate place, like a country that we can look back on it and that the, there are sort of rituals of that country or there's an order to that country. And I do think it's the same for everybody's childhood when, and I've talked a little bit to Darren Anderson about this, who's another dairy writer who wrote an incredible book called Inventory, where he looks back at his childhood and his family's history through a series of objects. And he sort of has that same outlook that it just felt so normal and because it was our normal and you know for a lot of people like the people I went to school with who wouldn't have experienced similar things you know I didn't even really talk about much of this with them like the day after we got petrol bond I still had to go into school and I, I did tell my closest friend but, you know, I didn't tell anybody else. I just went into school. And I think that reflects something. There's that sense of shame that you would carry quietly, um, embarrassment, confusion, not really understanding. Um, and also it's quite a funny thing where you you don't want people's sympathy. It's very odd where you sort of, you don't want, and I was, I really struggled with this with the book as well because I really wanted to tell the story because I think it's a universal story. Not that I'm speaking, I would never try to speak on anybody else's behalf, but just that I took my place in a telling of dairy. And there were a number of people that came before me that allowed me to do that, pass that baton on. And I think we all have that role to play. We, we all have something that we can help the people who've come after to share their truth. Because actually, what really upsets me is when you increasingly hear, sure, what would they know? You know, that wasn't the real troubles. You know, I hear this again and again, like, oh, they didn't know the half of it. Or what makes them think that they've got this? And that's a victim mentality, which is really hard to kick out from. Mm. So as when we do that, we're silencing people and we're actually minimizing what they've gone through and their ability to move forward from it. So we're keeping people in this place of trauma if we don't let them actually process it. 
So I'm really keen to sort of do my bit. Kerry, I think that's really a good thing that you said there about the universality of your book, because it is very specific about your childhood experiences and dairy and the troubles. But um, because of everything you went through and 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 the way that you eventually dealt with it, there's so much for everybody in this, I think, in terms of that thing I mentioned earlier. But, you know, a lot of the times we try to escape those very formative traumatic things in, in our childhoods or in our families. And they can there's no there's a hierarchy. There's no comparing. It's not like your suffering's worse than anybody else's. But um, but I, what talk to me then about about that need to escape, because with even with all that your love of nature and you're using your the natural world to kind of heal and to help you as a child because that's something that's very much comes comes across you definitely came to a point where you wanted to get the hell away from your place of birth and your your home place and to try and move up past or beyond which is a mistake that lots of people make because of course we have to bring ourselves with us don't we yeah that's that's a really like incredible point you've just made. We always have to bring ourselves. And there's a bit in the book where I've been running from so I've been running from place to place, always kind of searching for this um, sense of belonging, but also I think a sense of just not hating myself. I really I spent most of my life re- really deeply hating myself, and as you say, we bring it with us and I remember when I did decide that I was going to move back to Derry I remember being on the ferry coming over from Wales and I remember thinking you know this is the journey I made when I when I moved here um but it's the same me that's coming back here like I am dragging this part inside me this big black crow of darkness and so actually the only way that I thought that this is just my experience but I know that I've spoken to many people who've really processed their trauma as fully as they could. And the same thing echoes again and again until you make peace with yourself and forgive yourself for things that were not your fault. You're never going to be happy or grounded anywhere because place doesn't, doesn't mess us up and place doesn't heal us either. It's, it's always about us, right? (laughs) Um, I mean, this is just a, bit I've just it, you made me think of and I'm, I can't believe I found it this is amazing you know when you try to find a bit in a book and you never do but I did find it I think this is uh, really incredible I spent most of my life feeling harrowing as it is to admit now that I somehow must have deserved these things they were mine and to shed them would be would be to shed me in turn as though the thing that best defined me was the suffering and the sorrow the things I had seen and the things I had lost I could not for decades even try to imagine that there might be something in and underneath it all that there might be a self that would remain no matter how many layers I might slowly learn to undo. I had never before really accepted that I was a person who fled from place to place, thing to thing, person to person without ever staying long enough to settle. When people accused me of running away, of being emotionally cold, of so many things that I now see were absolutely right, I placed the blame on anything and everything else around me. I never took responsibility for my own part in it all, which, you know, might sound harsh on yourself, but I think it's just that pragmatism, that realisation. That's the thing. I mean, I'm speaking um, from personal experience. And when we go through something, we are prone to blame ourselves, especially if we have heard it as well. You know, if we've heard 
from people, from different people that we are to blame, we will accept it. That is also a form of victim mentality because you're playing into that role where everything is awful and it can't get fixed because you're the person to blame, right? Mm -hmm. So as soon as you undo that and just learn to be really gentle with yourself, it's, it's not easy, but I do think there are really key ways to do it and I think that it starts with forgiveness everything starts with forgiveness and um yeah it's it's always a long road right it is and and your road took you so you went to Edinburgh then you you went to Bristol um you you traveled around and you you really it's like that going back to that thing we talked about about you can't escape you bring yourself with you and inevitably all that darkness and trauma and I suppose we know it now is PTSD post-traumatic stress disorder which you weren't certainly weren't going around in Edinburgh or Bristol aware that that's what you were going through from having grown up in 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 the situation you did it caught up with you and it caught up with you in in the sort of almost typical ways like you know you were trying to numb yourself from the feelings so with alcohol and with just not engaging and and yet all the while seeking out these thin places being drawn to the places in England and in Scotland where you could feel that veil was very thin and so knowing the healing power of that tell me a little bit about the sort of there's there's an amazing moment in the book where you Avoid getting um, killed, really, by a, a glass window that falls from above. Uh, tell us that little story and then a bit about how you kind of came to get the help that you really needed, I suppose. Yeah. So, again, I do, like you mentioned earlier, I do see my life as having this series of really lucky moments. I don't know if lucky is the right word. Probably but not. Sorry. <laughs> but no, I know I, I would use it too. But more their cusp moments, I suppose, where... They're, they're almost thin places, you know, right? So um, I had just moved to Bristol. I had just moved from Edinburgh and convinced myself that this move was going to be the most important move. And this was where I was going to settle. And, you know, it was so lovely. I was living with really gorgeous women and, and I was teaching in an incredible school. I just started. It was my first day at work. Um, and I came back and we had this really beautiful garden um, where I lived in Bristol, just a, a real sprawling kind of wild garden. Um, and sort of like in Bristol, there's a lot of uh, red foxes. And I remember like when I first moved in, there's a fox asleep on top of the metal of the shed and just idyllic, really. But I came back from, um, from my first day and we'd finished early. And I was sitting on the on the back step, looking into the garden. And the area I lived in in Bristol is kind of renowned for not having good signal. Just you can't get the street that I lived on. Just couldn't get any phone signal. Couldn't get any phone reception at all. So I left my phone on the, on the kitchen table. And I'd heard before I'd left in the morning the guy upstairs was was doing work in the house, the flat above us. Um, I hadn't met him properly, but I'd sort of said hello to him in the morning. And I just remember I'd poured a cup of Earl Grey tea <laughs> and I was um, sitting on the, on, the, on, the, on the back doorstep with a book that I just started reading by um, Max Porter called Grief is the Thing with Feathers, which is, an, again, like it was an incredible part of my healing as a book. Um, and I was reading it and then my, my phone went off on the table behind me and 
I'd been expecting a call from my friend who lived in, in Edinburgh still. And I went to take it and I realised that there, there was no log on the phone. That there was no, no notification had gone off, which it couldn't have anyway, because there was no signal in the kitchen. But the next thing I knew, there was this incredible a sound like I've never got out of my head. Um, broken glass, um, a man like screaming like the banshee. I just signed, just this sound of uh, like an otherworldly sound. Um, and then really, really very soon um, there was banging at the door. I went and answered it. And um, the, the, basically the entire window from upstairs, guy had been trying to replace it and the whole window came through, fell onto the doorstep, shattered everywhere. Like I don't know how much weight of wood and glass. And we were still picking wood and glass out of the garden, you know, even when I left the property. Um, but that was exactly where you'd been sitting a minute, yeah. a moment before. Totally, yeah, totally. And the book was still there underneath it all. Um, and I remember, so the guy upstairs, um, you know, he thought he obviously thought he just either killed me or killed me, I think. <laughs> but it was, uh, yeah, it was, a. I don't even have words for it, really. It was one of those experiences. And it wasn't the last experience I've had like that. I have had one more since, actually, during the pandemic. But um but just that sense of <laughs> my dad would say that's your granddad looking down on you, <laughs> but you know, just that sense of um, I'm still here, you know, and uh, if I want to continue still being here, I really need to get my act together. And speaking of that, can you tell us a little bit about, uh, you know, when things got I suppose you became very suicidal. Everything did catch up with you. You couldn't bury the feelings of the past anymore. And so tell us about that time because you were so lost and in so much pain for quite a long time, really. Yeah, for re- actually for I've, I spent a lot of my adult life feeling that I didn't want, I couldn't see a way through, didn't want to be here anymore. Suicide is a really triggering thing, obviously, incredibly difficult Um so I suppose if people don't want to listen, now they could stop. <laughs> yeah, that's very kind of you to say that. And, and I think that's fair enough. But I, I did carry a darkness around for a really long time and could see no real way of changing me to make me want to just live, really. And I did try, as you say, a variety of things. I, I drank every day. Um, I, I sort of did try more kind of holistic methods as well you know I tried sort of going into nature I tried running all the time yoga all of the things that we are increasingly told um, we should be doing if we have issues with our mental health um diet (laughs) you know everything but the reality was that it was so deep that I need I needed to crash I think um which I did I had a real of I moved home to Derry, actually, in my um, early 30s. And I think that was the essential thing for me, to move back to the place where the trauma had began. Um, and I started I started therapy. I did a year of, just over a year of therapy, um, which, along with other things, like the support of, for the first time, the support of a loving partner, um, 
really taught me to be gentle with myself and really did did save my life. I wouldn't still be here if I hadn't done it. Yeah, I mean, the, the thing is, I, you say, and I, I think your partner, and you call him M in the book, and you'd only just really met him because you'd been home to Derry for a Christmas and then you'd come back and you'd had this crisis. And somebody, I think the doctor said to you, is there somebody you feel very safe with? And yeah. and that person who you'd only just really met and started a very tentative relationship with was the person yeah. you thought of. And it's incredible to think that he who had sort of grown up children of his own by that stage is a bit older than you, I think tw- over 20 years older than you. Yeah. And he um, he opened his home and his his life to you in a way yeah. that it was such a I mean, I reading about it, I found it so generous and loving and really transformative for you. Yeah. But also, I have to say, you were the one who did all the work, too. I mean, I I think it's beautiful that he created that space for you. But you then had to embark on this really tough journey. I think it's really important. And I'm always very wary about how you're supposed to talk about the the partner that helps you through trauma or, you know, anything like that breakdown or therapy, because it you can't deny that they are part of it. I can't deny that because I would never have gone to therapy if my really supportive partner had not told me really clearly, you're at breaking point. You've been at breaking point for a really long time. Um, And because I knew how much I meant to him, I trusted him. And those in combination meant that I could see myself as a thing worth saving. It wasn't just him. It wasn't just me. It wasn't just the therapy. It wasn't just dairy. They they were woven together, and and I think that we we I think we do understand how important it is to be loved, really, just to be loved freely, and but also in a really realistic way. He's a very I, I think I put this across in the book. He's rock solid. And, you know, he's he's lived so many lives, I think, that it's just I just got so lucky with him. (laughs) Kerry, can you for people listening who um, I mean, there's lucky people out there who haven't been through a lot of trauma or, you know, and like I say, there's no hierarchy of grief. Everybody has stuff they carry. But for the particular thing of growing up in a conflict society that as you did um, with that kind of everyday loss and destruction and sectarianism and hatred and all the things with a bit of distance now from it having gone through such a a transformative process of of working on yourself and coming out in a way the other side where you love yourself now I think is very clear and where you where you you do things for yourself that are loving and kind and all of that and what what could you sum up for people what effect that kind of uh, childhood can have on people obviously it's different for everyone but for you when you look back now what do you see that you had to carry with you through your life well totally I think that a lot of people just leave a lot of people they sort of they try to make peace with it by just leaving so there's this massive bulk of people that leave traumatic places that have even if the trauma hasn't technically affected them if they think it hasn't affected them, but it's there in the in the underneath the surface that it's easier to just walk away very often, and that's what people do or run away or, and then they become people can become quite embittered about where they're from, 
So what I find is with a lot of the people that would have been in and around my age group, even who would say they hadn't really experienced anything, when they talk about where they're from, you know that it's affected them. You know they look down on it or they, they're angry with it. They're angry that they couldn't stay. They're, they feel bitter. Um, and that, that has an impact that goes much deeper than what we can actually sort of tell. Um, I don't think I did that, but I think I was probably moving towards doing that. Um, but moving back to Derry, especially like the year of the Brexit vote where everything became even more difficult, was probably really good because what I could see was that everyone was affected to one extent or the other. And we need to talk about those effects. Otherwise, we allow just those high-pitched voices or just those very loud voices to come through. And this, any story is made up of a whole chorus of people. And if you leave some people out continuously, it's not a true song. And I think that in order to, to heal any place, to heal any set of people, we need to make, it's all about making room, making safe space. And if we think about, for example, I'm not comparing these, by the way, it's just another example. If we think about the Black Lives Movement at the moment, even now people are continuously saying within the Black community, let me talk about whatever I want to talk about. I don't just want to be brought on to be the representative of one way or of one thing. I, if I want to talk about something completely different, I need you to give me that safe space. And I think increasingly we're finding that. We're finding it with women in Ireland who want to talk about whatever they want to talk about. And we're finding it, you know, with places like Derry, border communities. I think what we're finding is a move towards making room, making safe space so people can heal. And the healing is really important to talk about, too, because uh, we haven't spoken too much about curlews or the moths or Mm -hmm. the nature. But that's like you, you, you beautifully talk about how the border as a as a concept is sort of in your veins, almost riven through your body, the the northern Irish border. But also um, how that microscope at eight, you know, really led to a, a very big lifeline for you, even in your darkest times. Tell us about your relationship now because you you're in in na- with nature because you're now not in Derry anymore you're in the middle of Ireland and you're in an old yeah. railway cottage surrounded it sounds like by the most amazing nature so maybe just talk a little bit about the importance of nature in your life then and now yeah so I would say um it's really interesting for me to talk about nature because I I am asked about it a lot and I always say that I view myself as part of the natural world, the world outside. Um, And as far as, so I don't know, we have a gut flora in our stomach. uh, And I live beside a bog. And for me, I'm the same as that bog in that respect, because I'm made up of all these things that have to work in harmony. And if we take that one step further, then, you know, I'm, I'm in my lovely local community centre because because where I live, I don't have broadband. I'm relying on the goodness of the community that's here to support me um, in what I do. So I think person to person is nature. You know, 
person to curly is nature, curly to the next part of, you know, to curly to the shoreline is nature. So I feel like it's also interwoven. It's also interconnected. And I'm really, I, I just love the natural world. I, but I love people too. So I think increasingly what we're finding is we're moving away from this, this and that us and them idea. So the more that we can see ourselves as part of just as one species that's interrelated with so many other species and so many other people, the better we're going to be able to respect each other and make make the world a better place for all of us. I know that sounds really cheesy, but I think I think that's where we're at. We need we need to make drastic changes. Um, and it starts like it starts with all of us, obviously. It starts with me and and moving here was a big, big thing. You know, moving somewhere like I'm literally in the middle of Ireland. <laughs> we've been in, you know, firstly a two kilometer lockdown and then five. So I've really got to know this place incredibly well. Tell us exactly where you are again. I'm in Westmeath. So I'm in just in, I'm in the just beside Garskill Bog, it's the central bog of Ireland. Okay. So it's, it's incredible. It's, yeah, I no words for it, really. I'm, I mean, it's so wild. And um, the middle of place, places in the middle are very particular. We're always drawn to the edges of things. But I would thoroughly recommend that people come to the Midlands. <laughs> <laughs> well, they should put you on an ad or something, Kerry. You're doing a good job there. Before you go, talk to me about Northern Ireland now. It was somewhere you escaped it was somewhere you came back to in order to heal. And it's somewhere so deep in your in your DNA, in your heart, in your family history. And like you said at the beginning, going right back to the famine, the trauma that people that was inflicted on people. Where do you see Northern Ireland now? Because it has been where it was in the recent past, a hopeful time, a hopeful place in terms of all the, you know, the peace process that happened. And now with Brexit, um, which is another thread through the book, it's obviously a challenge again there's difficulties coming from that you mentioned Lyra McKee as well in the book and various other incidents so how is your relationship to Northern Ireland now and what are your hopes politically for the place I absolutely love the north of Ireland I I almost can't talk about it sometimes without just being overcome with um just love and desire for it to be as safe as it can be for everybody there. I just so much believe that the people who still live there, who've gone through so much and who've lost so much and been so affected, I just, I don't think they're going to lie down again. I think think we're at a point with the North where people are, are learning to raise their voice in a way that's different from how maybe they had been taught to do it before. And I believe, like, if you even just think about the writers that are coming out of the north of Ireland, I mean, it's on fire at the moment, you know, and people are writing about stuff that they never thought they could write about before. And I think even that in itself is a, a really good indicator. Like, we're, we're giving voice to things now. And Brexit, of course, has made things, like, really, really difficult. And there's, it's a continued thing. It's going to be a long, a long haul journey. But I'm confident, I'm like, I'm incredibly hopeful that the future that was began, like the seeds that were planted a long while back 
will continue because the people of the North are so resilient and they're, they're just so gorgeous. And I think, I think we're going to see incredible change um, and I'm here for it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad you're um, so hopeful. That's a lovely note. Um, you've written this book. It's quite an, an extraordinary book, I have to say. And I would re- it's an intense read. There's no getting away from it. But it's the kind of thing that you read a bit of and you sit with for a moment. And, and also, I learned so much about uh the natural world that I didn't know. You're kind of reminding me of Dara McAnulty in that way, in the, in the way of opening the windows to people like me who are a bit cityfied and haven't really gone out to the thin places as much as we, we should have. But um, what are you working on now? And how does it feel having this book out in the pandemic? Is that tricky? Yeah, that's such a good question. Both of those questions are good questions. Yeah, bringing the book out in the pandemic was obviously not how I imagined it would be. What I, like when I imagined a book launch, I didn't imagine sitting in my pajamas at home. <laughs> but you know, you know what? Um, what it does teach you is that so many people are so supportive. Like people have gone above and beyond to just get this book out there to to you know to share it, to tell people about it, to like like yourself inviting me on podcasts and. You know, I have an incredible team of people working behind this. It's never just one person. Like, it's not my book. It belongs to like at least 25 other people, you know, editor, agent, like publicists, all of the journalists, bloggers who've given their time, booksellers. You know, my book is still selling, even though shops are closed. And that's thanks to so many people. And I think what I am increasingly touched by is the book's like two weeks today. And I just wake up every day feeling so grateful because, you know, people are so good. (laughs) And I'm, yeah. So anyway, that's to answer the bringing the book out in the pandemic. But at the moment I'm working on my second book. So I started that um, during the editing of, of Thin Places. So I started it just the week before the pandemic really hit us, I think in Ireland. I started it on the leap day of the leap year last year. Um, and it's completely set here in Westmeath. <laughs> so it's more or less set um, just within my, basically within my five kilometres, more or less. And it's, um, it's a very different book. It's not going to be as intense. Um, I think it's a much quieter book. And it's a book about um, about being grounded, being grounded in place and being grounded in yourself. And yeah, um, I'm really excited about it. And yeah. Yeah, it sounds lovely. And I recommend Thin Places to everyone. And I can't wait to read that new one as well. Um, you've such a gorgeous voice Kerry and a real um there's a mysticism there but like you just said it's it's very grounded also so the the you know the ability to kind of um uh, it resonates I think with and it will resonate with a lot of people the way you express things so um thank you for doing it and congratulations on a wonderful work thank you so much for having me on as well I wish you all the best thanks a million Kerry 
that's all we have time for. Thank you very much, Kerry Doherty, and I really recommend Thin Places. It's an intense read, as I said, but it really is a worthwhile one. The podcast is produced by me, Roisin Ingle, and by Jennifer Ryan and Suzanne Brennan with JJ Vernon on sound. Get in touch with us by email, thewomenspodcast at irishtimes.com or on social at IT Women's Podcast. Mind yourselves, go eat some donuts, and I'll talk to you next time. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.